Welcome to episode four of Low Muck, a tiny slice of the Muck podcast where we talk to people in the media and in politics about their favorite stories or experiences. I'm Tina Hadamio. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary, tell us about today's guest. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so today's guest is Jason Krushka, who currently serves as chief of staff for Broward County Commissioner Tim Ryan. Um, but here is why he is here. So in 2016, Jason began working at Capital Collateral Regional Council in Fort Lauderdale, representing death sentenced clients in post conviction hearings in state and federal court. But previously than, uh, than that, he worked in the public defender's office for the 20th Judicial Court or Circuit, I'm sorry, in Fort Myers. And during law school at Florida State University, Jason interned at the Innocence Project of Florida. So welcome, Jason. Thank you. Uh, I'm very uh, excited to be on. I really appreciate the opportunity. And hello to Hillary and Tina. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, so first, let's talk about your time as a public defender. So public defenders play a really important role in our justice system. Um, of course, here in Broward, we have a really big public defenders race happening right now, which is very exciting, especially for political nerds like myself. Um, so why don't you start uh, tell by telling us uh, why you decided to uh, kick off your career at the public defender's office? I, I was inspired to get into criminal defense through my work at the Innocence Project. Uh, that was my first exposure to uh, criminal law, and it, you know, it exposed a lot of the flaws in the criminal justice system and the people there in encouraged uh, all the interns to look for ways to be able to make change within the system. And so, you know, the opportunity to work at a public defender's office seemed like the, the right fit coming out of law school. Um, you know, if, if you remember back in 2009, uh, the economy still wasn't great. Uh, it was a, a good opportunity for a, uh, a stable job that I could, that would, me a whole host of experiences, um, you know, and an opportunity to work with a lot of people around my age. And yeah, it, the possibility of just uh, making small change within your sphere of influence. So that's, that's kind of what I was looking for when I joined the public defender's office. And it was, you know, everything I imagined and more, uh, you know, I ended up staying there for six years. Wow. I started by working, uh, you know, misdemeanors and then working all the way up to punishable by life felonies. Um, I became a track leader, which basically means that you're the lead attorney in front of a particular judge and that you have attorneys under you. Um, so it was, it was a great experience overall. Um, but, you know, it also revealed a lot of things, additional things about the criminal justice system that, that I think needed to change. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, uh, it showed the disparity in treatment between people with means and people without means. Means, mm. um, you know, uh, Brian Stevenson, who's a who's having a kind of a cultural moment now because of his movie uh, Just Mercy, which is based on his book. Uh, you know, he's quoted as saying, "Our criminal justice system treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent." Yeah, right. Uh, Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes, and I think that's that's certainly true uh, through my experience. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's part of, you know, when we did, I've done a lot of conversations with like the the public defender candidates, and when I researched about that role in the justice system, it's so important because everybody, of course, uh, is due a, a legal counsel, and um, it's really not 
a free service. You know, I know people have this, there's this misconception right. that it's free. I, I always, I don't, I, yeah. I'm one of those people that honestly thought that it, it was like, oh, you can't afford an attorney. One will be provided for you. And right. the assumption, the, the false assumption that I made is, oh yeah. So then it's just free of charge. Right. And then it's at least in Broward County, I think it's a $50 application fee. Plus if you plead out, it's, there's another cost. If you go to, if you go to court, it's another cost. And then of course we're talking about indigent uh, clients, defendants that can't afford all of this. And then they get caught in this cycle of debt. And um, there's also racial biases that like what you're referring to that, that come into play. So did you ever come into contact with any kind of like racial bias in the system in a, in a case that you were um, defending? Um, yeah. I mean, I think you, I most, it was most readily apparent when you, uh, when I would go to trial and in trial you have jury selection and, you know, you're, you have the opportunity to question as many people uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, potential jurors as possible. And you can ask them a, a wide range of questions to try to get at any biases and, and things like that. And, mm. you know, you come up with a, a variety of ways to try to get at those. And, you know, a lot of times people would be fairly forthcoming with their biases. Um, wow. You know, so, the, so we would have a, a, a minority client especially if if you looked a certain way, um, you know, if you had dreadlocks or, you know, something that, you know, that, uh, you know, somebody in the audience perceived as uh, some type of stereotype that was negative, um, they, they may express that opinion. Um, and obviously they wouldn't sit on the jury because that would be a reason to get rid of them. But it was, it's also a situation where you're, you're in a courtroom with a whole bunch of people. And if one person makes a comment like that, you don't know what the effect is on mm. everybody else and right. their thinking. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that, that that might prevent them from then sharing a similar bias. Yeah. And if they know that, you know, you know, you don't find out until the end whether or not you're on the jury or, or not. But I think um, you sometimes they can tell by the follow-up questions from the attorneys or other things, you know, if the, sometimes the judge will then call the person up, try to get more clarification, you know, outside the presence of, of the other jurors. So there's a lot of circumstances in which, you know, legally the, the jury pool isn't tainted, but you can see how that could affect uh, the perception of your client um, for anybody who ends up on that jury panel. So um, that's just one example. I, I, I mean, I, Probably if I spend a lot of time thinking about it, I could, I could come up with others. But in terms of jury, the jury pool, you know, that tends to not be reflective of the community because it's based on whether or not you're registered to vote. And mm-hmm. I, I think I, and I think driver's license, I, I don't remember how exactly they determine it, but I know that those is either whether or not you have a driver's license and also if you ha- are registered to vote. So if, if you have those two things, I think you're more likely to be so be selected and called into jury service. And, and also so naturally. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that that could naturally uh, create a jury pool that doesn't, isn't automatically reflective of the entire community. Yeah. And then also if you can serve on a jury, like there's people there who can take time off of work or maybe don't work for a living and can spend time in a courtroom all day. You know, there's people who, who maybe get that jury selection or like uh, to be picked for a jury and can't go in because they have to work. And so how is this really a jury, juror of your peers who are making these decisions, you know? And I also wonder, which I know you don't know because you're not in the court now in the courtrooms today, but, um, 
I feel like there's this Trump effect where people can really say how they feel uh. and maybe they would hint at it years ago, but now maybe it's more blatant. Like, I just don't like X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? I wonder if that's having any effect on, on what's happening in the, in the jury process, the selection process. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to your other point in terms of uh, Fort Myers, obviously uh, there's a large uh, retirement population and, you know, so those the, the retirement community tended to be the larger proportion of your jury pool because they were the ones who were least likely to have some type of conflict, be right. it work or children or other things. And it just it naturally weeded itself out that way. So even if you as a public defender, you're questioning people, you have a lot of people who you're like, oh, man, this person would make a, a good juror for this case, you know, then they they raise their hand and they're like, oh, but, um, you know, the, the judge just told me that this trial may take three days. I can't because of X, Y, or Z. Right. And, you know, so it, it was, that would be a disheartening moment when you think you're, okay, I, I might be able to, to get a good jury pool here. And then, you know, one by one, people are eliminated based on their, their particular conflict. So. so you also spent time as an intern for the Innocence Project. And on the Innocence Project of Florida, we saw that taped interrogations are still not required by law. So as a former public defender, do you think taped interrogations are important? You mean in terms of recording the, the interrogation? Correct. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that should be standard across the board. Uh, what you learn when you study uh, wrongful convictions is that a lot of times um, it, it can be based on a false confession. And a lot of times that false confession comes about because there's some type of influence that is done prior to the actual recorded statement. So you'll, you'll see a lot of circumstances where somebody is threatened or, um, you know, or fed the story that they are then supposed to regurgitate while it's being recorded, but you don't see any of that beforehand. So when the client says, oh, well, before this got recorded, they did X, Y, or Z, well, there's no evidence to that effect. And then mm. you're, you're in a position as the attorney to try to try to argue that without anything to, to directly point to. Um, so that's where, yeah, I, I absolutely think that any interaction between law enforcement and a suspect should be recorded, uh, you know, including at, with body cameras, but then certainly at, at a point of interrogation, because you know, that is such a powerful thing for a jury if right. they're sitting there and they see that, in the person's own words that they are admitting that some or all of the facts that that would lead to their conviction. So. Why, why do you think Florida has not moved forward on that particular piece? Uh, honestly, I don't know, but I mean, out of any state in the country, Florida should. Um, you know, Innocence Project it, uh, is responsible for 21 exonerations. Wow. Um, 2003. Um, and if you look at our, our death penalty system, there's been 29 uh, exonerations off of our death row. Wow. So, you know, clearly it's something is not functioning properly. So if any state should be, should be the one that's leading in these types of reforms, it should be Florida. Um, why that is the case? I mean, obviously I could, I could theorize in terms of the particular politics of the state and, and all those types of things, but um, at the end of the day, there has to be, I think there has to be a public will and a consciousness of these issues to bring it to the attention of 
legislators, and uh, unless there's a popular will to, to bring these reforms forward, uh, it, it may not happen. So that's why, you know, that's why I'm really happy when you see things, um, you know, the proliferation of like these Netflix documentaries and things yes. like that. It's, I think it's really um, opened the eyes of a lot of people throughout the country when you can watch these documentaries and it gives people empathy that they otherwise wouldn't have and an understanding of where the system can go wrong. Because if you've never experienced it personally and you don't know anybody who's experienced it, it's hard to have that conception. But then when you can actually watch it and, and, and see the details, the, 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 pain, the painful details of somebody who's been wrongfully incarcerated for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years, I mean, that has a, an emotional impact on people. Yeah, I also think about the public when I think about public defender's office, you know, people don't seem to really care about that if they're not if there's no way they think they'll ever need it, they don't really seem to pay attention to it. But at some point in your life, if you're if your life is ever touched, it could be a, a child, it could be a parent, it could be a sibling, somebody in your life is going to uh could be involved in the justice system and all of these things working correctly is going to be what you're hoping for you know and if you're a person of color especially uh odds are it's not going to be in your favor you know yeah and i think obviously some of the most powerful examples are people who um you know are not minorities because i think that is, is something that can really wake up the, the the white majority to the idea that yeah this isn't just happening to minority communities. It can happen to you. I mean, uh, one of the cases that I um, got to see from the Innocence Project where the, I got to see the gentleman actually walk out of prison. His name is William Dunn. He's a white guy. Um, he was uh, charged with murder, uh, a 1981 murder. And basically, it was a murder at a beach. Um, he was at the beach a few days later. Um, he had read some stories about uh, about the murder in the newspaper. Law enforcement was kind of canvassing the area and, and started questioning people. They asked him about it. I guess he regurgitated some details um, that he had read in the newspaper. And for whatever reason, law enforcement thought that this is somebody we need to to talk to further they oh, brought no. him in for questioning over multiple days and then uh, eventually arrested him and you know i could go into the details of the case because wow. it's extremely crazy but like he he spent 27 years in, <gasps> in prison for a crime he didn't commit um and and was he exonerated through dna or yes um yeah the basic facts are that um you know there there was a murder at the beach the there was somebody at the beach who picked up a, close to the beach who picked up a hitchhiker. This hitchhiker ended up being the person who committed the crime. Mm -hmm. They left uh, a bloody shirt inside the vehicle. Um, and that was turned over to law enforcement. Now that was never tested during the, the dependency of the case. <sighs> and back in 1981, uh, they didn't really have as much, uh, you know, they didn't really have the DNA science was not, uh, but they could do maybe could... blood type or something back then, right? Right, right. There's certainly some tests that could have been done, but it, it wasn't done at that point. Oh. And um, as, as I think the, the most effective way for people to really get a, a feel for it is to go to um, the Innocence Project's website because they detail the facts of every one of their exonerations. But what they've done is they've broken down all of these cases and 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 
showed some commonalities, you know, and one of the commonalities is, you know, a situation where somebody is making a false a- accusation or, per- you know, perjuring themselves to, uh, to say that this other person did the crime. Um, you know, the, the motivation in this particular case, he had his, uh, a romantic acquaintance that actually testified against him. And the influence for her was she, she said afterwards, after she testified at trial, um, she recanted her entire testimony and she said that law enforcement threatened her with, you know, putting her in prison for a long period of time. And then she was actually engaged with a sexual, engaged with one of the detectives in a sexual relationship Mm -hmm. at one point during the investigation. Oh, Lord. And that's just one of the the things. And it's, it's, I I swear, you read these things and it's the craziest set of facts you'll ever see. But like I said, I think people being aware of those type of cases where it's actually happening to to somebody they they may be able to identify with more uh, would lead to a larger empathy throughout the public and a desire for reform and change. So, you know, when you bring up DNA, it reminds me of the Golden State Killer. And I know this is yes. going to be a totally <laughs> off the wall question, but how do you, as a lawyer, how do you feel about um, the police using the DNA system, the DNA in, in the, like the familial, oh, um, like the Jed where they do Jed, um, like your, your, I think it's called Jed match or 21, whatever the, the, the chromosomes, like, whatever, what am I thinking of the family where you can send your DNA away and it tells you right. where you're from. Right. And they use that system to identify a match with the Golden State Killer. Right. Um, and I know that there's been some question of like, of is privacy. This, yeah. Like, how do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I mean, I actually did 23andMe just out of curiosity. And, um, you know, they have these disclaimers on there. Oh, you know, if you do this, you, you it can't be shared or, or whatever. But I just think that's a, a an example of where technology has outpaced our laws. Mm. And, you know, I, I mean, unfortunately, I don't have the exact answer to that, but keep in mind DNA evidence was um, brought about initially to for the benefit of prosecution. It was only after you know the OJ case um, that the two main main attorneys in that case they basically flipped it out of its head and used it as a defense, um, and that's how the Innocence Project got started. Is after that, two of the attorneys for OJ Simpson started the Innocence Project and focused on DNA evidence as a means to exonerate defendants as opposed to a, a, a means to prove guilt. So it, it's, that's been the, the genesis of DNA. And that's, you know, so it was always at the beginning, the, the intent was to use it to affirm conviction. But the irony is that it's been more powerful in, in um, proving the flaws in the criminal justice system. Right. So. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of torn because I know that there's a right to privacy, and but people are. But my thing is like, you know, if you committed a crime, like, oh well, yeah, this is what happens. Yeah, especially for, for like a serial killer. Like, yeah. I, I I love that idea that they can be traced to some family member, and then they wait for someone to drop a cigarette butt, and yeah. then they find the, you know, and then the link is there. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, to me, I feel like it's good police work. You're using yeah. everything at your disposal to find this person that had been, you know, decades, no idea who this person is. And right. this one test comes back and they were able to eliminate all of these, you know, through the family member. It's amazing to me. 
Oh, I was just going to say that one of the other um, main issues with wrongful convictions is the use of or misapplication of forensic science. So that's an area where, you know, we have to be careful as well because, right. you know, one of the most powerful things for a jury is to hear from somebody who has been deemed by the court an expert because um, they, they will literally, literally say, uh, you know, you, you do these questions to show the court that this person should be qualified as an expert and then the, the, the court will basically deem them to be an expert. And obviously that is much harder for a defense attorney to attack, you know, once, once that label has been put on the person. So we, you know, the Innocence Project found that, you know, in a lot of different cases and going back to uh, William Dillon's case, there was a uh, a guy who, a police officer who was a dog handler, and he supposedly trained his dog to be able to track scents over long distances, over water, all of these type of things. Mm. And his testimony was one of the things that was used against uh, William Dillon, and he was later deemed to be a complete fraud. Um, I think the Arizona Supreme Court had deemed him to be a fraud. There was a 2020 wow. special about the junk science that, that, that was behind all of that. That's another example where we have to be very careful right. as to what's admitted and what's, what's shown to a jury. So. And there was recently also, I think it was a blood spatter. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a blood spatter expert that they found to be completely fraudulent, and then they had to go back through uh, a lot of the convictions that he was, because he ended up being on so many cases because he had built this reputation, and then it turned out that none of it uh, was accurate and mm-hmm. they had to go back through all those cases that he had testified on. So there definitely yep. is. And I know that there's the fear too, that if the DNA is out there, then that it can be used, you know, in a, in a negative way to frame someone. Or I know people have these fears about the privacy of the DNA right? and how it can be manipulated as well. So. And another example in terms of um, junk science is something like bite marks. They, you know, they used to, you know, use, and I don't know if they're still being used depending on where you are within the country, but like the idea that you can definitively identify somebody by a bite mark, you know, unless there's something completely unusual about their teeth or that, that type of thing. And so that, that's an example of another area where, you know, um, and, and certain ballistics tests that have been done um, by the FBI and, and things like that. So there's been a whole host of things that have been, used to convict people that have been discredited over time. And I, I mentioned there's one other key element here uh, in terms of wrongful convictions, and that's, um, you know, eyewitness identification. Uh, you know, when we think about, like, movies that portray crimes or the criminal justice system or trials, the most powerful scene tends to be the, the victim of the crime identifying the perpetrator. Right. But what we found uh, is that a lot of times people are really bad at uh, accurately identifying uh, somebody who's committed a crime against them, especially if it's a heinous crime. You know, the, the flight or flight mechanism that humans have is not actually good for perfect recall in that situation. You know, you're, the last thing you're thinking about is what is this, you know, person, what, what, what are the distinguishing characteristics mm-hmm. of this person? that I can later use to identify them and, and, and make sure that they're convicted. And that's especially the case in, in cross racial identifications, you know, mm-hmm. if it's a white person identifying a black person, black, white, 
you know, any iteration of that, it, it's, it's been proven to even be less reliable. And so I'd, I'd point um, your listeners to, uh, there's a, a 2000 New York Times op-ed um, it's called I Was Certain But I Was Wrong. And it was written by a rape, rape victim named Jennifer Thompson who misidentified her, her assailant. And the person served, I think, 11 years in prison. Oh he was exonerated by DNA. And she explains how certain she was. Uh, how the process went and, and how, how devastating the news was for her when she found out that she had misidentified the person because she had been at peace knowing that she had find the right person that that person was in, in prison. He wasn't going to hurt anybody else. Wow. And then to find out after 11 years that you, you pointed your finger at the wrong person. Um, and so it shows that it's not even intentional most of the time. It's just the function of, the way we operate as humans. And the problem is that jurors see that type of identification and that is very powerful evidence. Like she, you know, a lot right. of times in court, they'll say, how certain are you? Oh, I'm a hundred percent certain that that's the guy who did it. And once, once a jury hears that, uh, it's very difficult for a defense attorney to have, you know, they can, they can nibble around the edges. They can try to point out the inconsistencies. They can do as best they can, but that's a very powerful statement in court that is very hard to overcome. God, it's incredible. There's so many moving parts to all of this. But even the human factor reminds me so much about what we talk about on our regular Muck episodes where um, politicians or elected officials are acting a certain way or they're using what they know of human biases or um, how the humans can be manipulated to right. think a certain way. And the most evil people that, you know, they yeah. know that and they use it to manipulate how they're going to influence a community against another community or whatever. But just that these human biases existed, it shows up in every single aspect of of things from the court system to voting to a school system or police biases yeah. or whatever. It's like all of it always comes back to these human, the way humans interact with each other. You know, and the other yep, thing and that's why ed, ed, that's why education is so important and understanding those biases yes. so that you can try to mitigate against them. And and with the eyewitness testimony, that just the psychology of memory is is interesting because every time you recall the memory, like your brain is sort of taking a different snapshot of it, and and it distorts over time. So there is there's not a true yeah recall. Um, I know that they've done like some psychology work on that too about memory and how reliable is it mm-hmm. um so that's just so interesting to me it is oh this was so good yes. thank you jason i want to say happy father's day to you i know you're taking time oh, out you. yes yeah. you're recording this on father's day with us i really appreciate you taking some time out of your day today um to to join us it was so awesome to talk to you well it, it was a great gift to be able to talk about this stuff because this is some of the things I, I, I love talking about. So Awesome. Well, yeah. I will probably continue to talk to you and bother you about every single case that comes up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just won't record it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Have such, have a great day. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye. 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 If you want to learn more about this week's guest, please follow the episode notes on our blog at the muckpodcast.fireside.fm and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the muck podcast. To support the Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for the Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.